This week on Crossing the Lean Lines. And we were going month by month starting with September. So we went October, Halloween meet, no, Thanksgiving, turkey meet, no, Christmas meet is already was a holiday, Christmas winter meet, January, Martin Luther King. I said, hmm, that's a possibility there. In February, I said, there it is. Have a swim meet on a Black History Month. D.C. is the home to the White House, the Washington Monument, and the Martin Luther King Memorial. Everyone knows this. But what many don't know about is that it is also home to some of the most vibrant Black aquatic programs in the country. And many were either founded or influenced by one man. Today, we'll speak to Lauren Hill, a 35-year employee of D.C.'s Recreation and Parks, about the history of municipal pools, founding of an elite-level swim club, an aqua day camp, and the Black History Invitational Swim Meet, which launched the careers of Olympians and college-age group swimmers around the country and around the world. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. When one thinks about areas of the country that have a strong swimming culture, D.C. is usually not involved in that conversation. However, the nation's capital has long been a place, especially for black swimmers, where they have had an opportunity to not only learn to swim, but also develop into strong age group athletes as well. There is a complicated story concerning the federal government, the city of Washington, black people, white people, and both people's desire for liquid access. And it is on today's show that we'll talk about the aquatic history of a town that is home to the White House, but also many black houses too. Joining us to talk about the history of aquatics in Washington, D.C. is Lauren Hill. For 35 years, he worked for the District of Columbia's Recreation and Parks, including, though not limited, to as many jobs for the department over these years, he served as Chief of Aquatic Services, founded several aquatics programs, and most notably was one of the people who created the Black History Invitational Swim Meet, which boasts more than 1,500 participants from around the country and around the world. Lauren Hill, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to come and be able to talk about my career, uh, the pools of Washington, D.C., and the great history behind it and the great citizens of, of the District of Columbia. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Lauren, this is my favorite question to ask of my guests, and I'm looking forward to your answer. When did you learn to swim, and can you briefly talk about your swim journey? Oh, I sure can. You know, it's funny, I don't normally tell everybody about my uh my journey, but it, I think it all had to do with where I eventually landed up, Chief of Aquatic Services. It all started uh, a long time ago when I uh, lived uh, in far northeast D.C., and me and uh, young guys, when we were young, 10, 12 years old, we always were adventurous. But my mother uh, decided to first put me at some swimmer lessons, some Red Cross swimmer lessons at Anacostia Swimming Pool in Southeast. Well, I went on over there and took the two-week course in beginner swimming. And I didn't pass. <laughs> I was surprised, but it didn't matter. I didn't pass. I don't... But nevertheless, was it was a nice learning experience. Two years later, I wound up, when I was 12, I wound up going with some young guys from the neighborhood and we managed to create a boat out of a cement mixer. Uh, we Somebody found a cement mixer, and we hauled it for about a half mile down through the woods to the eastern branch. Now, the eastern branch is the Anacostia River. They call it the eastern branch from the Potomac River, which is the main river in Washington, D.C. But Anacostia River was there we were. We got this metal trough, and nine of us got in this metal trough and went out in the middle, and if that boat sank, we all probably would have drowned and died. But nevertheless, was I remember coming back to to the wall uh, to, to get off, and, and I was standing on the edge, and the boat 
didn't have ropes. The boat started moving back, and I fell in. And I had my hands on the walls, but eventually my hands slipped off. But I did have my hands vertical while I was underwater. And fortunately enough, somebody pulled me up. And I thank that gentleman to this day for saving me. And 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 then, so that made me wake up. But I still didn't learn to swim in the truest sense until I moved. Two years later, when I was 14, I remember moving uptown, up in Northwest from far Northeast, and all the guys up there looked at me as a great athlete, football and basketball and running and strength. But they said, let's go swimming at the Coma Swimming Pool one day. I was scared to death because I didn't really know how to swim. If I fell in, I probably would have drowned, according to my mind. Anyway, big ride to the pool that day, and it was a crowded pool, and and uh, Parks and Recreation, it, it was still still was under the federal government at the time, and we had to pay 25 cents to get in. You know, so uh, it was under GSI and the federal government. The district government hadn't taken over the pool yet. So I remember going out. I said, let me get out on the pool deck real fast. And went out on the pool deck, and I, on my own, I went around the far side, and I got about the five-and-a-half-foot mark where the rope is in the ladder. And I just started to tread water, tread water, grab the railing, tread water, grab the wall, tread water, tread water, until eventually I stayed up. That's all I needed. I realized that that day that the key to swimming is treading water. If you fell into a pool or bay or water or anywhere, a lake or a river, and you you know, you're not that far from safety. You know, you're less than 10 feet usually. You're not going to go far if you can't swim. So I realized that all I needed to do was get back to that wall and that, and that ladder or that rope or that side or the gutter, anything, whatever to grab onto. So trading water is key. So I emphasized throughout my career, uh, my career, learn to tread water. Don't worry about the strokes and the mechanics, all the technical part of to get you further and long distance swimming, you know. Uh, learn how to stay afloat to safety, and that was key. Because 85% of the drownings in the world, by the way, are less than 10 feet from safety. And that's stuck in my mind from that day on, and I took that with me to aquatics. Please to say, six years later, I was the manager of that same Anacostia swimming pool that I once failed my beginning swimmer lessons. That was my journey. I'm wondering if you could talk about the building of swimming pools in D.C. and the politics that made this happen. Yes, uh, Washington, D.C., as everyone knows, is the most unique municipality location in the entire country. It's not a state. Most people don't even really know what it is. Some people don't even know that people live there. Some people have no idea there's 625,000 of us that live there. Some people just think the President of the United States lived there. I had it happen to me so many times when I travel when people saw my Washington, D.C. driver's license. But it was what made it so unique was, and it's still like this to this day, until the District of Columbia becomes a state, there are two governments there. You got the federal government. And you got the district government. What's confusing is who does what? Because it does not operate like Baltimore, Maryland, to the state of Maryland. Baltimore is a city. It controls its own operation. The Department of Recreation has its own parks. And the government or the state government has nothing to do with it. And Lord knows the federal government has zero to do with it. But in D.C., we have the president of the United States. So Joe Biden is runs part of Washington, D.C., and he runs too many of the parks in D.C. So the word parks and parks and recreation still is not true in the District of Columbia. One day, my dream is it will be true. So that's that's the dilemma right we are today. So statehood is very important for us to uh, be able to manage our own self. But nevertheless, the unique history of the dual governments in a way, strangely enough, paid off, especially with swimming pools. And, and, and that's what happened, is that the federal government years ago, let's say in the 20s, got itself in hot water by not, couldn't really practice segregation directly, but they did indirectly. And the, and the location 
to surprise most of us who, who in and around D.C. or the nation should be aware of this, that, you know, the city prior to 1920 only had two outdoor pools in the city, and those were in select two select communities, one in northeast and one in northwest, privy to those communities only. However, the public pools were segregated, and they were all indoors, like a YMCA and et cetera. So those, so indoor pools and universities and colleges and so forth and schools, they were indoors. No one could see each other swimming. That's important They're right there, the visibility of it all. But there was one place that got got it all in high water in a strange way. And and that swimming facility, <laughs> unknown to a lot of people, please be get ready to Google this. It was called the Tidal Basin Bathing Beach. The Tidal Basin with those nice cherry trees around it, the home of the Jefferson Memorial and Martin Luther King Memorial and the FDR Memorial around that nice big pond there, the Tidal Basin, which was once no more than a drainage sewage ditch for the drainage of the city. Somebody said, well, we start swimming in it. Well, let's make it a beach. And they did. They made it a white segregated beach in 1990, 1920. By 1922, that facility was full-blown. The bathhouse sat exactly where the Thomas Jefferson Memorial sits today. Keep that in mind. It was there today and what used to be there. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of entertaining. Go on and Google it, Tidal Basin, Bailey Beach, and you see people from with the Washington Monument in the background. It's kind of interesting. And you also see some of the crazy laws and rules that they had. And a nice big two-level diving tower out in the middle, which mostly had men diving off of it. Through the course of my aquatic days, I got to meet three people that once worked there. Yep, one gentleman came from Poland with his family. He, as a child, by the way, his job was to wash out the male rental bathing suits. And those those old wooden bathing suits looked like something Tarzan would wear. Now, he said he he earned five cents an hour. That gentleman later on became the manager of the pool when I first started working at a swimming pool and nearby down there. So he was, he was a fantastic gentleman, hard worker, and, you know, he taught me a lot. But nevertheless, was the Tidal Basin Bathing Beach was the, basically the home of the first swimming pool. Now, 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 even though it's a lake or a pond, how you want to look at it, the federal government got involved by bringing in tons and tons of truckloads of sand and flattening out the bottom. They also made a beachfront, a bathhouse, and other things there that made it really enjoyable. It had bathing suit contests and swimming contests there, and you name it. And then, in fact, uh, one company uh, started renting out canoes there. And by the way, they're still there. They rent out paddle boats now, those nice blue paddle boats. So they're still there. Nevertheless, well, they even filtered this, this area with big filters. Now the people didn't even know where those filters were. They drove over top of them, over a little small bridge all the time. They had no idea that those filters between the Tidal Basin and the Washington Channel. Nevertheless, was here's what happened. African Americans wanted to swim too. So they started to go on the west side. The Jefferson or the bathhouse where the Jefferson Memorial sits was on the east side. Blacks started to swim on the west side. Now, coincidentally, that location, as a gentleman who swam there, took me down to the exact spot one day. And lo and behold, a few years later, it's the same location where the Martin Luther King Memorial sits today. I said, wow, how ironic could this be? He said, since he was a lifeguard, he would go down there and on his own time, lifeguard African-Americans that were trying to sneak in a swim illegally. So then the African-Americans started to gain clout over this matter and demanded to the federal government. Oh, by the way, the federal government to make sure that they weren't charged for segregation 
hired a quasi-private government operation, which I won't mention by name, but you can look at them up. But nevertheless, was they ran this beach. And they also ran other things in the city later on. But right there, they ran that beach. So anyway, the pressure was on the federal government to give African-Americans a beach. African-Americans wanted a beach. Now, they were going to put that beach out near where the soccer stadium is today at an area called Buzzard Point. They, But they didn't know one liked that name, Buzzard, so they were going to change the name. The federal government funded $75,000 to build that beach. Because the federal government had this thing was about, well, we can make things separate but equal. Separate but equal. That was their way out. Separate but equal. Not integration, but separate but equal. But the, 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 it's funny that back then when in the 20s when the river was nice and clean and still fishable and got still had good sea, seafood in it for, for the, for the uh, sea markets down at the southwest waterfront, However, somebody said, oh, the water's polluted. We can't allow you to have that beach there, and they canceled the beach. $75,000 were appropriated, was gone. And nevertheless was, in 1926, with a half little victory, the federal government shut down the Tidal Basin Bathing Beach. In 1932, the Jefferson Memorial was built at the same spot where the bathhouse was. So... Now, that was a half victory for African-Americans, but not a full victory. Now, up the street, there was the Wildlife Fish fish uh, Mission, right next to the Washington Monument, where their headquarters were. They had these fish hatcheries going on. It was a bunch of ponds on the White House ground. They were, someone was really into fish and wildlife at that time. Now, they were going to stock these ponds with fish that they're growing in these long pools near the White House, excuse me, near the Washington Monument. And someone said, well, let's turn those two long pools, concrete pools, into swimming pools, people, instead of fish. And they did. And they were side by side, and there it goes. Now, the federal government's got their separate but equal Thing going on here in the 19, late 20s now. And those pools were separated, one, one for blacks and one for whites. As I interviewed the late Tom Hughes, that who was the lifeguard there on the, at the black pool, he, while we're standing on the exact spot near 17th and Constitution Avenue, Northwest, he pointed out to me that the black pool was called the Black Bathing Beach, affectionately after the Tidal Basin Bathing Beach for whites only. The white folks called their pool the fish pond. Now, I checked that out, too, because the chief of aquatics before me, Mr. James Tompkins, remembers that, that fish pond clearly. Their pools were the same, but however, they decided to put 10-foot-tall boards around the black pool. Now, the reason for that was simply so white folks could not see black folks swimming. Now, let let that leave up to your mind. What was the logic behind or the psychology behind that? So and, and that obviously must have been important for them to hide African-Americans swimming. But anyway, the late Tom Hughes, by the way, was not only a great college swim coach and coached many African-Americans to proceed in swim. He also was the first African-American to be an NCAA official. Tom Hughes is a D.C. resident, and many of us can thank him for helping us to learn how to swim competitively. There was a time when there was a city of Washington in D.C., Thus, it's the reason folks still call it Washington, D.C., as though it's a city and a state. The reason why I'm mentioning this is that there was controversy surrounding the location of a pool that was used by blacks called Francis Pool. Can you talk about Francis Pool and also about the issues surrounding its location? The Tidal Basin Bathing Beach was closed in 1926. Those uh, the, the the monument pool stayed on to 1930, but nevertheless was in 1928 
two years after they closed the Tyrell Basin Beach, blacks got their wish. They didn't get a beach, but they got a swimming pool. And that, that swimming pool was named after Dr. John Francis. He was African-American charged of, of the um, uh, of uh, Freeman's Hospital at that time. By the way, the Freeman's Hospital, let me tell you where it was. Oh, watch this. 23rd and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest, right next door to the GW Hospital. That's where the original Freeman's Hospital. That area was called the West End. It was for African-Americans, prominent African-Americans living on the West End. Even though Georgetown was further west in D.C., that was the West End. Now, why was it called the West End? The reason why it was called the West End was because you got to got to think uh, like this. Think and see if you can picture, picture a city of Washington as a city inside the state of District of Columbia, just like you have Baltimore, Maryland, Miami, Florida. You get it? You know, Los Angeles, California. Well, there was actually a municipality in the District of Columbia. By the way, it was three of them. Three independent municipalities. City of Washington was the biggest and most prominent. The next one was Georgetown. The third one that's going to really mess up some people's history mind is the city of Alexander, which is now Alexander, Virginia. The District of Columbia was originally marked out. Two-thirds of it came to the state of Maryland, one-third from the state of Virginia on the other side of the Potomac River. If you look at it, it's shaped like a diamond, just like a baseball diamond. So Arlington County and Alexandria County was once part of the District of Columbia. And that those county lines between the neighboring county and the Fairfax is the same regional borderline of the District of Columbia with the state of Virginia. State of Virginia decided to ask for their part back. Federal government wasn't doing anything with it anyway. So the federal government gave it back to Virginia. Now, why? They gave it back to Virginia because there was a lot of slave owners in Alexandria, Old Town Alexandria, okay, because that was a major port. Slave owners and slave people, uh, previous slaves, all lived around ports, major ports, Alexandria and Georgetown Port, okay? Here we go. Back to the city of Washington. The city of Washington is is was the biggest part. They only designed or what's his name? Lafont and Banneker, Benjamin. They only de- they only designed or mapped out the District of Columbia other than the borders. They only mapped out the streets and locations for what is what you would call which is actually the city of Washington. And the city of Washington had its own laws, own regulations, own blue laws, own everything. In fact, let's talk about that. The the most notable boundary line is now called Florida Avenue. Looking at a map, Florida Avenue is on the north side of the city of Washington and a semicircle. That was the boundary between the city of Washington and the rest of the District of Columbia, north of that. Florida Avenue circulates from all the way from the west side, where Georgetown is, which is the West End area, which we talked about, where the blacks live, all the way over to the east side, where it joins up with the intersection of the what we call the Starburst on the east side. Let me describe the Starburst. The Starburst is where the following streets all meet. And let me tell you what, when you look at the map, none of these streets continue across the line when they get to the Starburst on the east side boundary. Florida Avenue, Blazenburg Road, Benny Road, 8th Street, Maryland Avenue, 15th Street. All of them stop right there. But that was the eastern boundary. And now, here we go. Francis Swimming Pool, there was no outdoor public pools inside the district of the other city of Washington. In fact, that plays a major role what happened even after this point of Francis Pool. So Francis Pool was barely inside the city of Washington at 25th and Inch Street Northwest. The pool that sits there today is the second Francis Pool that I helped to design and build when I was chief of aquatics in the late in the 90s. 
But that pool, prior to that, was built in 1928, and it was historic for African Americans, and a lot of African Americans learned to swim there, became good swimmers there. So the Francis Pool was key, but it's right on the border, right at Rock Creek, which was the west boundary. And by the way, Rock Creek being the west boundary, for those who like to know what where was the boundary on the western side, let's follow Pennsylvania Avenue. At 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, everybody knows White House is there, and let's go west and continue. And all of a sudden, Pennsylvania Avenue stops at, guess where? Rock Creek. Now it's 28th in Pennsylvania Avenue, or was it 28th in M Street? So Pennsylvania Avenue suddenly becomes M Street. Why? Because you entered another municipality back then called Georgetown from the city of Washington. Just like 7th Street going northbound, stops at Florida Avenue and becomes Georgia Avenue. Look how crazy Connecticut Avenue gets when it passes Florida Avenue going northbound, nice and straight in the District of Columbia. All of a sudden, it starts weaving and turning, going northbound all the way up to the National Zoo. And y'all see that? Because they were different. And that's what it all it takes. The buses were different. The streetcars were different. Everything was different back then. But uh, nevertheless, was it defines it. And the southern boundaries were the rivers, the Potomac River and the Anacostia River. So, so Francis Swimming Pool now, in 1928, became the third public pool in the city. The other two, again, were in two neighborhoods that were kind of protective of the community. Those were the communities of Rosedale and Northeast at 17th Street and Georgetown at uh, off the park at 35th and Foster Place. Once again, notice none of those two pools were inside the city of Washington. Lauren, if you can, tell our listeners about Joe Cole and his extraordinary impact on aquatics in the D.C. area. Yes, he did. Now, now Joe Cole was, uh, Joseph H. Cole was the first African-American uh, director of, of, of Parks and Recreation. Now, Parks and Recreation over the years has had six different titles and names, okay? But they're all pretty similar. Park, in the Department of Recreation, Recreation Department, you know, didn't matter. It was Recreation, this, that, Parks and Recreation, Bureau of Recreation, all kinds of names. I worked on the six different agency names and myself because I was for 35 years. But Joseph Cole was a hometown boy. Joseph H. Cole went to college here, schools here, and became and started at the bottom of Parks Recreation and worked his all the way up to the director. Now, so he knew what the city needed. He knew. He had a vision. And, and we're talking about now 1964. But, but when he came in in 1964, and right before that, he was begin even he came before director, he was beginning to make his move because they knew what was gonna happen in the city. Basically the agencies stopped, you know, instead of being most predominantly white managed, we became African American managed. That was about what was beginning to happen. So the the, the city pools that we had prior to Joseph H. Cole in nineteen sixty four. I call them the big nine. Original nine. All those pools, by the way, Seth Francis, were all in the District of Columbia. Now, a single one was in the city of Washington. They built in pairs. The Anchor Pool, the Coma Pool was built in Northwest. All of them were north of Florida Avenue. East of Tony, Anacostia, all was built south of the boundary line. George, Georgetown and, and uh, Rosedale were east and west of that. Then Langdon Park. And McKinley was also built outside of those boundary lines. All of them were nearby. The guy that ran the buses and streetcars, his name was O'Roy Chalk. Buses and streetcars were probably on D.C. Transit. O'Roy Chalk, not a single one of his streetcar barns were inside the city of Washington. They were all a block or two just outside the city of Washington. Same thing with why was Howard University just one couple of blocks up? Why was the stadium, Griffith Stadium, just a couple of blocks up in the District of Columbia, not in the city of Washington? It just goes on and on and on. Even our first mayor, Robert Brent, built his mansion just on the north side of Florida Avenue 
And later on, he donated his his mansions and estate to, which is now Gallaudet Death for the physically challenged. Okay, so Gallaudet Death University. So Robert Brent, first mayor of Washington D.C. Okay, so that's so so, and that goes way way back. And again, who elected the mayors and governors? was the president of the United States. Wasn't until Walter E. Washington, he was our first publicly elected mayor, number, and he was number 13. <laughs> Took that many mayors, all the rest of them, I mean, uh, were, uh, were appointed by the president of the United States. Now, Walter Washington was at first in 64, uh, LBJ, but in 68, he became the very first elected mayor. So we were beginning to gain a little home rule. But Joseph Cole was determined, and I was, and that's when I started my career. The same year he became director, it was a brand-new day. Joseph Cole wanted to put the city of Wart, uh, District of Columbia on the map, and he did. We started winning the national gold medals almost year after year after year from, from the National Parks and Recreation Association and we did. He wanted to, he started to build and build and build. The federal government loved him. They gave him what he needed because, you know why? He was giving the people what they wanted. Now, you know, the 60s were, were temperature-wise, it was very hot. I don't know if you remember, but it's hot. Not only the temperature was hot, the political climate was hot, too. I mean, it was hot. I mean, the politics was kicking back then. So Joseph Cole got he he was helping the federal government out, calming people down, give the people what they want. And one thing was a bonus, a bone of contention here, and it still is kind of day, and I'll talk about it. Is these swimming pools? Swimming pools seem to have been the last stronghold of racial segregation in this country. It's something about it, about pools that that wind up being an issue here in this country. And to me, it's still going on in an in a, in a indirect way, you know. And whereas when I came up, I failed to see it myself, but because I lived in a city where a whole lot of African-Americans swam, and swam well. So people say black people can't swim. No, that was a stupid, that was a stupid statement to me. But then again, I didn't know the nation. I didn't know what was going on. I was I was swimming in a nutshell, as I call it. I only knew Washington, D.C. at that time. You know, and I said, you know what? This is this is interesting. You're talking about African-Americans when swim. Ain't talking about them drowning. Well, I said, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I said, if you're afraid of water, you don't go near. How many times I heard an African-American mother, hey, Johnny, don't you go near that water. You know you can't swim. Well, look, you see. How do you drown if you're afraid of water? You're not going to go over there anyway. You know, so 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 you may have a high risk of drowning, but statistically, it's still white folks drown far more than black. And that's a fact. In fact, I found out who drowns the most in this country through statistics. I'm going to break it down. Number one is a male. Going to be a male. Number two, white male is that. Three, but age four to six years old. Where? Backyard pools. That's who drowns in this country. And where they drown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Public pools? Guess what? Safest place to swim in the country if it's a lifeguard there. <laughs> Safest place in the country to swim is a public pool with lifeguards. If they got signs, ain't no lifeguards out there. Well, then you better have at least two other people there to watch you. The one may not do it. You know, you know, I've seen some dumb stuff happen, mistakes happen in pools. That's a fact. Around water. You know, I've seen good swimmers drown. I've seen all kinds of people get upset. And race had nothing to do with it. It has to do with stupidity and taking chances and risk and not reading. So in comes learning. Learning how to swim. Washington, D.C., Joseph Cole had a vision. He wanted a swimming pool within three quarters of a mile of walking distance to every citizen in Washington, D.C. Wow. 
I had no idea what that looked like until I saw the map. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I saw that map. Oh, man, next thing I know, we're building three pools on the average per year in Washington, D.C. Most of these pools were built in African-American communities at first. Back then, the city the demographics was shifting. Whites were moving out, blacks were moving in. The city was getting population swelled up from 600,000 to 900,000 people, by the way. African-American people were, were, were strong in numbers. And, and and a lot of them obviously didn't know how to swim. So these pools were being built out in southeast D.C., east of the Anacostia River, where the apartment housing, the project housing, and all those other housing started coming up in number. Now, now Joseph H. Cole took away the use for, for swimming pools. He eliminated that 25-cent emission fee. The pools were free, not only free to get in, free to even learn how to swim like any other program that we had all of our it was no money involved free it didn't matter if you lived in dc maryland virginia alaska or 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 or, or, or italy <laughs> everybody could come in and swim nobody cards you nobody checked your id block them all because it was federally funded pools so and and there it was wide open and then it was maybe bland and basic, but they followed all the health regulations. The health department inspected our pool just like any other pool. The same inspector that inspected our pool, inspected the private pools, the Watergate pool. See, see the guy, I knew the inspector. The guy, guy said, yeah, I just left the three Watergate pools, and now he's over there at one of my public pools inspecting the pool. Same standards. It was the same. Uh, some people thought that public meant negative or uh, lesser. No, you're wrong. In fact, it was worse. We had to keep our standards up high, our water quality high. I learned the swim program boomed. Eventually, we went from nine pools in 1963, starting in 1963, to 45 pools, mostly outdoor pools. 35 outdoor pools and 10 indoor pools in a very short period of time. You've faced many challenges in your tenure with DC Rec and Parks, but one that I found very fascinating concerned a new indoor aquatic facility that was built in 1970. Take us back to the time when the Capitol East Natatorium came around, and what subsequently happened after that? The, yes, in, in 1970, the Parks and Recreation built its first indoor complex, and that was called the Capitol East Natatorium. Man, that name, Natatorium, right there struck a bell because how many times have you ever heard, what's a Natatorium? You know, well, it's a, it's a swimming pool for human beings, that's what it means. Like a aquarium is an editorial. So um, it was built on Capitol Hill. In 1970, Capitol Hill was in transition. It went, you know, from the 68 March of King Rise, Capitol Hill took a little bruising. And, you know, a lot of things were boarded up during that time. So this was the beginning of the revival of Capitol Hill. So Parks and Recreation was able to, with Joseph Cole, was able to put the Capitol's Natatorium in commission down there. That was a big deal because see, the pools that we ran were all in public schools. We didn't run them full blast because we had a share of the pool because we didn't own the pool. The public school owned the pool, but, you know, at the school hours, they, their pools just sat there, did nothing. So Parks and Recreation was able to make use of them in the afternoon and evenings and, and Saturdays. But a lot of people didn't know those pools were available to them and free of charge. And those two most notable ones were Dunbar High School and Cardoza High School and African-American School. Now, there were others, but they they were closed up because they were more white-based schools and white, really, honestly, didn't want blacks to come in, so they just 
and had the pool open or they shut it down completely. But those two pools continued and and, and did very well. Very well. But they were small pools now. Small little indoor pools. The Natatorium was full fledged a short course twenty five yard pool. And it was beautiful and nice and it was full grown, operated seven days a week and even operated on a week or holidays at that time when it first started. It changed the direction of aquatics. We now have to go year round more. And ironically, it worked right in because now outdoor recreation was slowly be- being hit by something called code red and code orange of kids being outside in the hot sun, you know? Now, indoor facilities begin to start to gain ground, both pool and recreation, indoor. So we start building some big recreation centers too. So now we start building these indoor pools. But the main thing was to offer programs on a, on a constant basis year-round, 52 weeks of the year. That was that was the point. And then the, then came the big part, was now we got, instead of having 24 swim teams for summer only, now we were able to start having a year-round swim team, a full-fledged USA Swimming Incorporated bona fide swim team. And that's where it started to really change with the competitive swimming of African Americans in Washington D.C. was was that facility, and and we began to change. And so, me as an up and coming person, and I eventually managed that pool. I, well, this is the way to go. We need to make use of our environment instead of three months of the year, make use of a, of a facility for 12 months in a year. And that's where I started to say, let's continue to make these more indoor pools run by parks and recreation and and cater to, to year-round uh, aquatics because fitness was coming in, aqua aerobics was coming in, competitive swimming was picking up, lap swimming was gaining ground. All this was happening. So all at the same time. And we were right there on the cutting edge to make it happen in D.C. While serving as the assistant chief of aquatic services, you began receiving pressure from Dr. Calvin Rolak and his right-hand man, William H. Rumsey. Talk about what they wanted you to do and what was the result of their pushing and prodding. Yes. Well, see, what I was, what I was beginning to... You know, I, I uh, when I got promoted out of the Capitol East Sanatorium as manager of the Capitol Sanatorium, I went up to headquarters and the assistant chief uh, director of aquatics, chief of aquatics. While I was there, uh, the director of recreation uh, had got a call from William H. Rumsey. He was a Dr. Rumsey was the former director of parks and recreation a few years back. And he was a swimmer too, by the way. He swam at Howard University. And he became a special consultant for the United Black Fund under under Dr. Calvin Rolock. Well, Dr. Rumsey came to the director and the director bounced him down to us in aquatics because Dr. Rolock had a interesting request. <laughs> and that request was he liked he wanted to help out and help sponsor a swim meet that had African-Americans swimming in the meet. Well, I said, with Dr. Rolock and Rubs, and y'all are a little bit late. You know, we had 25 outdoor teams. We got one year-round team. A whole lot of African-Americans were swimming competition for years. Well, what would you want me to do different? <laughs> so so they didn't know what to say. I guess it was clear to me they that Dr. Rolock was not aware that African-Americans swam competitively and swam well, by the way. Great. Did not know that. So he eventually had a meeting. And and because this was curious for me anyway. What was he trying to say? What was he wanting to do? So we had a little fishing session. 
that's that's I fishing session. So we sat down and started to go back and forth and talk about it. And I finally figured out what he what his drive was. Now he got learned that African Americans not only swim but swim competitively nationwide, worldwide, by the way, is that he wanted to take it to another level and see what we can do on a national level to showcase it. He wanted to showcase it. Well, I bought into it because I would do anything that would help promote swimming, period, for everybody, anybody, number one. Number two, if it means to help promote African Americans to swim and swim better, I did in for that too. But as a gun employee, I was in for anybody and everybody. I didn't care who what it was. Uh, I wasn't biased, wasn't racist. Let's make it happen. So I didn't really have a lot to go on. So I took the thought back to my crew, my team, my pool managers and everybody, my year round pool managers. They were they were the backbone of aquatics like with me. They were, they were, we were, we were a team. We, we, we worked together. We were a strong team. We, 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 we kept developing ourselves better and better as aquatic experts of what we did. We knew swimming pools. You, trust me, we knew swimming pools. Physically, functionally, programmatically, politically, money-wise, budget-wise, we knew pools. So, so then, so here we go. It was September. I never get that. And, I said, well, we were in the Potomac Valley uh, uh, Swimming Division of the USA Swimming Incorporated. And, we, and our team was the D.C. Waves swim team. I created the D.C. Waves just a year prior. That was 1988. That was 1989. D.C. Waves was a team that I had to create to incorporate all of our indoor squads into one team instead of being separate teams. That worked fantastically. That way it pulled our coaches together, our resource together, and united our teams together, and united our agency together, and eventually it united us when we swam the swam swim meets too. And the DC waves became historic. So there we were trying to get this major uh, swim meet that Dr. Rogelock was trying to envision, but really didn't know what to do. So I said, guys and ladies, what could we do to have a major swim meet? And we were going month by month, starting with September. So we went October, Halloween meet, no, Thanksgiving, Turkey meet, no, Christmas meet, as already was a holiday, Christmas winter meet, January, Martin Luther King. I said, hmm, that's a possibility there. In February, I said, there it is. Have a swim meet on a Black History Month. And that's where it is. The Black History Invitational Swim Meet was created. And little did we know what that meet was going to create. And did it create. It really hit a thing in this country. I had no idea. Because we all swam in nutshells. We didn't even know if other black swim teams or any other swim teams existed in the night. We had no clue, but we found out. Boy, 34, 35 years later, still going on strong. Unbelievable. It's, it was, it's, a, it's, it's just a good thing, a great feeling to go in that meeting every February on the long weekend, President's Weekend, just for, for two and a half days to see that many swimmers mostly African-Americans, a lot of Hispanics now coming aboard too, to be swimming in a meet that they're proud of and they love it. The Black History Swim Meet, Invitation Swim Meet, has become, according to USA Swimming, a must-go swim meet. That's what they call it. You must go to that meet. And it's a premium meet now. It, it got to that level. It was the first meet to be the largest African-American swimming in the world. But I like the fact that six other major cities cloned that meat throughout the year and made their own version of the meat. That's what I love. That's what makes me proud. 
you were inspired to create something that you called Aqua Day Camp. Can you tell us what this camp was about and the success, challenges, and your hopes for it in the future were? Yes, uh, the, it was uh, it was named the Aqua Day Camp, and <laughs> actually, it, it, it I got the idea from a gentleman that was actually doing something illegal, <laughs> but but you know, but I'm always one for looking at new ways of how to get somebody in a pool. I, you know, I, I wanted everyone to know swimming. What it takes, what it took, I had to figure out a way how to sell it. Think about this now. I had a free swimming program. How do you sell free? <laughs> you know, you know, think about it. I had to sell free. That's harder than you think it is. Because free means something's wrong with it. Or it's cheap. Get that? But it wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't free. It's not free. Parks and Recreation pools were cost one, excuse me, cost $2.2 million a year for taxpayers' money. That's not free. That's called prepaid. Okay? And that's how I had to tell people. My pools are not free. You just prepaid if you don't use it. No, you prepaid it. So use a little. So I started to redress the issues of how that. And this that was some of my sale points right there. It's not free. And it's not cheap. It's, and, and, and the word public doesn't mean black either. I didn't care about your race. I didn't care about your age, race, or whoever you are, what you are, your religion. Just come in. That's all I cared about. Anyway, so I had to figure out. How to, I can get kids in the swimming pool. I started noticing that our learn to swim program was beginning to dwindle. Now, let me tell you about the learn to swim program, you understand. It was during the summer, mostly. You came for a one-hour class, Monday through Friday, for two weeks. Now, that meant that and it was between the hours of 9 and 12 in the morning. And that means that, what, a parent's going to have to take off their job, if they got a normal job, come there, take their child, Watch the child, you know, it, you know, one hour they can't even go anywhere. They can't even go, go to 7-Eleven, get a cup of coffee. Right. You know, you know, just to, to watch the child. And that was the problem, is that they, parents from the beginning, didn't have that time or effort to do that. Like and it started excluding who could do that. That meant that you had to have a car, transportation. You know, it was such an impact on people. I started to notice that it dwindled. It was beginning to be less and less people in the class. I mean, it, you know, even though at one time it used to be overfilled, overbooked, but it started to taper off. So I said, let's ask what somebody was doing one day, one of my pools. I said, there it is. Create an all-day day camp aquatic related at a swimming pool. So basically what I did was merge the day camp with a swimming pool. Merged it together. And I merged it together and now came to watch this trick, quality control. But before I talk about the quality control, let me tell you what the camp was about. What you got was a all day nine to five mostly aquatic lessons and things and aquatic related activities. You still had the regular day camp stuff too, indoor stuff, you know, all that little stuff. And you had field trips, you know, other than most of the field trips were aquatic related too, you know, as well. Now I also offered early drop off for extra feet and late pickup for extra feet. But here is the difference was this was not free. This was a paid program. That's what made the difference. Somehow enough, people thought they were getting more if they paid for it. It was psychology at number uh, 401. <laughs> My just thought that nobody was going to come. Good gracious. I had a I had a 300% waiting list. <laughs> over, over a $15 uh, program. $15. I had a waiting list. 
I increased the speed to 75 in the next year, and he still thought that I lost my mind. I still had a serious long wait for The, the Aqua Day Camp began and still is the most popular summer camp program in the Parks and Recreation. It fills up on the Internet in nanoseconds. And, and, and it's unique, and, and parents can drop their kids off in the morning pick them up in the after in the evening if they want extended care. The program was successful and still is. And I highly recommend other cities to adopt that program because it worked and still working to this day. Finally, we are at a crucial time in our country. Sixty seven percent of black children still do not know how to swim. This also means that at least sixty some odd percent of black adults are not comfortable in the water either. We know the stats. We know what happens and needs to happen. In your opinion, where do we go from here to make sure black folks are water proficient? Yes. And again, as I mentioned a minute ago, programs like the Camp can work. What you got to do is you, you have to do is, is focus on, on, on programs that will make it easy for people to get in, and do as well as promotion. See, you know, I, I stress the positive. What is the positive of, of swimming? Not so much the negative, the positive. But two is is to what does it take to to appreciate the water? Number one is sometimes it's oversold as if it's complicated. It's not complicated. You have to start basic. Remember how I started under peer pressure, I've taught myself how to tread water. Once you know how to tread water, your fear goes away, or half of it goes away. Guess how the other half goes away? It's do something simple like opening your eyes under the water. Some people say, you can open your eyes under the water? Yes, you can. See, so, you know, because, you know, it's hard to swim when you're claustrophobic. When your eyes are closed, like swimming in the dark, that's spooky. Open your eyes, see where you're going. Anyway, so those are little things to do, and I, I tell people, you know, 90% of the people to learn how to swim learn on their own or having somebody show them, like a family member or a friend. Only 10% take take lessons. Lessons are fine, but, but you know, I say you go to the pool every day. Just get in it, 20 minutes. Sit in it, stand in it, walk in it. Just get used to it. Move your arms, move your legs. You can hold your breath for at least a minute. Go on and hold your breath. Jump underwater for 10 seconds, 5 seconds. Keep doing it. Do it daily, 20 minutes a day. Just get in. Take your kids with you. Get in. Get used to the water in your face. Get used to the temperature. Your body gets used to the temperature in, in three minutes. Three minutes. Put your legs in it. Sit on the side. Put your legs in it. Don't have to put your whole body. Put your legs in it. Your body get acclimated in three minutes. Then you can, Then your whole body can get in the pool. Get used to it. Enjoy it. Walk in it. Back and forth. You know, get used to it. Dump under. Drop low. Do this. And, and you can teach yourself how to swim. Just I've seen so many people learn how to swim. Just by doing what I'm telling you right now. I mean, I sat there day after day watching people come in the pool, didn't know how to swim, and, and, and just kept doing it just the way I'm describing. Enjoy it. Indoor pools got warmer water. See, that's even better, too. Warm water is great for little kids. Never splash water in somebody's back or face when they're hot. That's not good. Leave them alone. Let them get in on their own. Don't push them in. Don't pull them in. Don't splash water on them. That chases people away. Nobody likes that. Just be nice. Enjoy it. Get in easy. Take it easy. Go to the family. You know, and like I say, just get in and walk in and free it. Waist high. That's all. Just do that. And keep doing it. Come off as you can. You know, and, and get away from the myths. There's no myths. 
I heard so many crazy myths and fun. Oh, you don't swim through the winter time because your pores or your body open up, you catch cold. That's stupid. You can't get your hair wet. You're gonna get sick and cold. That's another dumb myth. Please stop listening to the myth. Get in the water. Your body is 98% water. So what's the problem? You can swim during the winter. You can do swim during the summer. Temperature don't mean a daggone thing outside. Because once you take a shower, after you spend swimming, swimming. It's no more take a shower if you want a basketball court. It's the same thing. So you just well go on and swim. So take away the excuses. It's not. It's not. It's no racial thing in it. It's it's for everybody because we all are made of water and and it has a luring effect on you. It has a positive effect on you, emotional, spiritual effect on you. And and I'm telling you, there's nothing like swimming and floating around. You don't have to swim up and down and be, be a great swimmer, you know, like Michael Phelps. No, no, no. He, I just want you to see that he fell in the fell in the water. You can get back in less than that ten feet from safety and save yourself. That's all. That's to me is swimming. And you, if somebody asks me, can you swim? If they can do that, then they know how to swim. If they can get back those few little feet and grab that edge whoever they fell into, they know how to swim. Swimming across that pool, mechanics, that's part two. Don't worry about that. It's safety. Our guest today has been Lauren Hill, a 35-year employee with the D.C. Recreation and Parks. He formerly served as chief of aquatic services, founded several aquatics programs, most notably the Black History Invitational Swim Meet, which boasts more than 1,500 participants from around the country and around the world. Currently, he is researching a book he plans to write about the history of aquatics in Washington, D.C. Lauren Hill, we wish you and your family health and safety during these challenging times in our country. And thank you again for joining us today on Crossing the Lane Lines. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.